0: When I went to Mecca for pilgrimage in 2009, eight years later, of the shooting incident, I kept thinking about my shooting incident and my attacker sitting on death row waiting to die. And I deeply realized that by killing him, we would simply lose a human life without dealing with the root cause. I began to see him as a human being like me, not just a killer.
1: Hello friends and damn givers. Welcome to let's give a damn. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. And on this show, I sit down for conversations with volunteers, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, activists, politicians, actors, musicians, athletes, and all kinds of people who are giving a damn and striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you so much for showing up this week. I'm extremely glad you're here. Before we begin give me two seconds. I'd like to ask for you to support us in one of two ways today. It would mean so much for you to go and leave a five-star rating and review on Apple podcasts or on whichever platform you listen to the podcast on. And if you've already left a rating and review, would you mind sending this episode or whichever one is your favorite to a friend or two? We are a small company and team, and we rely heavily on you to spread the word. Thank you so much. Friends, this past weekend was the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the largest terrorist attack to ever take place on American soil. 2,977 Americans tragically died after two planes crashed into the Twin Towers right here in New York City, another plane crashed into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and a fourth plane crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. A tragic day in every way. But like many of you, I have mixed feelings about this day. For one, there are decades of conflict that lead up to something like this. It was not an isolated incident at all. Also, in the 20-year war that followed 9-11, 900,000 people died, including 364,000 innocent civilians. Additionally, the rise in Islamophobia that happened in this country and around the world after that day is disgusting and tragic. Hatred and violence toward Muslims and many people of color have continued to this day. And I have a love-hate relationship with the never-forget slogan that we use on and around 9-11. Why? Because most Americans seem to have a selective memory when it comes to all that happened before and after 9-11. It all sucks. Terrorist attacks fucking suck. War fucking sucks. American, Afghan, Syrian, Pakistani, civilians being brutally murdered fucking sucks. My guest this week envisions a world without violence, victims, fear, and hate. And he has every reason to not feel that way. A mere two years after arriving in the U.S. from Bangladesh and 10 days after 9-11, an Aryan Brotherhood white supremacist tried to murder him for simply being Muslim. My guest today is Race Bouyan. I don't want to give away too much of his story now, but I will say that I admire the hell out of him. After recovering from being shot in the face at point blank, he advocated for the life of the man who tried to kill him, and he started an organization called World Without Hate. Friends, for the next hour and a half, you're in the presence of an angel, a man that has so much to teach you and me. In addition to being an angel, Race worked with the Obama administration's domestic policy council. He currently represents the U.S. Department of State as part of their Speakers Bureau, supporting federal efforts for peace and understanding. He has been featured in many documentaries, news segments, articles. He gave an incredible TEDx talk at Emory University. Please Google it and watch it ASAP. And he has been given countless awards, and there may or may not be a Hollywood movie about his life and story in the works. Friends, you're in for a real treat. Before we jump in, a reminder as always, that you can anytime and for any reason email me at hello at let'sgivea You can ask questions, suggest future guests, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with the amazing Race Bouillon. Let's go. Race Bouillon, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast.
0: Well, thank you so very much for sharing my story. I appreciate
1: that. It's uh, This was very uh, serendipitous that we were able to pull this off in a couple of days. I won't bore people with the backstory, but you know, one of my guests had to cancel quickly because of death in the family, and it happened on the weekend of 9-11. I, it actually snug up on me, and I wanted to have a more concentrated conversation around the different dynamics around 9-11 and it just caught up on me and I couldn't couldn't make it happen and then again serendipitously uh not the death of the the family member of my guest but it worked out that you and your team were able to you know we were able to work this out within the matter of a couple of days and so I could not be more thrilled I feel very um I've spoken to very well-known people on this podcast big people that a lot of people would usually get very nervous around I None of that makes me nervous. I can talk to anybody about anything. I feel very, um, th- there's a different type of feeling about this conversation. I feel very honored to be in your presence because um, our entire conversation, it's going to go a lot of different directions, but we're going to kind of, uh, you know, climax talking about world without hate. And I am someone who is very justice oriented and that gets the better part of me a lot of times and it manifests itself by me getting angry and upset and for sure wanting justice and i don't wish ill on anyone but i get so angry and i get so um yeah just overwhelmed with how much evil there is in the world and how many like that person should get what's coming to them because of all the things they did right and then I, I meet with you as a person, and your, this movement you've started, and I just feel taken back. So I'm very excited about all that we're going to talk about today, and I'm honored that you are here. Um, before we get into the big stuff, before, before we get into, obviously, you know, we have people listening from 80, 90 countries right now. Most are from North America, so most are very acquainted with what nine eleven means, right, for this country. Um, But before we get to all of that, I wanna get some more context for who you are, where you come from, your family, the kinds of things that influenced you growing up. And let's talk about that for a minute and kind of go all the way to May of 2001 when you moved to Dallas, Texas. So let's go before that for now. Uh, It's my understanding that you grew up in Bangladesh. Tell me about growing up there in your family and what it was like. And and yeah, take us on a journey from there all the way to you wanting to come to the US to uh, live here. What was that like?
0: Well, thank you so very much uh, for asking me this question. Um, I was born and raised in a devout, Muslim middle-class family in Bangladesh. Uh, in a big family, five brothers and three sisters. My dad was an engineer, worked for the Bangladesh government. Later on, he was transferred to uh, Arab Emirates where he worked almost eighteen years to build the telephone infrastructure of the country. My mother is a housewife. She took very good care of us, and the house I grew up in, you know, uh, since we have like five five brothers and three sisters, we had a chain of command. That you know, my elder brother was in charge of me and and my other two brothers and sisters, and then he used to report to the other brother who was above who was senior to him. So we. We grew up in that kind of environment, a chain of command and roles and responsibilities. Um, it, was a, it was a fantastic childhood. and um, um, But at the same time also, uh, I remember that um, the country I grew up in um, is a poor country, little country, but also poor. Uh, I grew up seeing a lot of uh, poverty and mm-hmm. um, seeing that uh, how people struggle desperately to live like a human being. You know, I saw people coming at our door on a regular basis, uh, asking for a cup of rice, a bowl of lentil. And and we were so fortunate uh, that we never had to worry about where the next meal would come from, where my parents would be able to uh, come up with um, the monthly expenses. But the plight of the poor deeply touched me. And uh, I kept asking myself, what could I do to help them? And I remember one day, my mother caught me red-handed while giving one of your outfits away to a poor woman came begging at our door. And when she asked me what I was doing, I confessed that it was not the first time I had given her outfit to people came begging at our door. Wow, And and she had been wondering why her closet was thinning. (laughs) So even though she was uh, proud of my kindness, my giving spirit at a very young age, she urged me to enjoy growing up. And I could not continue my crying for a long time because I left home at the age of 12 to attend one of the prestigious military boarding schools, one of the best educational system in the country. And uh, I still remember that day back in 86, when I said goodbye to my mother, she was crying and said goodbye to me. So I attended that military boarding school for six years. And later on, I joined the Bangladeshi Air Force to fulfill my childhood dream to become an Air Force pilot. But after graduating as a pilot officer, I did not feel my destiny was there. Hmm. And my American dream kept calling me. So eventually I left my home, my family, Uh, my career in the Air Force to pursue my passion in computer science for New York City. And um, when I first landed in New York City, I loved it very, very much uh, because I read about New York City in in my high school. It's it's, it's a city of light and um, glass. Mm -hmm. The the city never slips. So now here I'm in this city, Seeing everything in my own eyes, I was very excited. I was so happy that finally I came to the US and I uh, was attending schools to learn more about computer science. And uh, I remember one of my roommates uh, was in taxi and limousine service. And on his slow nights, he would invite me along uh, to see the beauty of New York City at nighttime. And uh, it was such a beautiful moment that, you know, going with him to different parts of the town and see the beauty of New York City. And uh, he would introduce me uh, once any passenger hopped in. And I would hear one of the first questions would be, where are you from? Mm -hmm. So that would lead us to a geography and history conversation for the next 10, 15 minutes. But I enjoyed those, those conversations with you know with passengers. I learned about them, they learned about me. And at that time, I remembered my uh, chemistry teacher's advice that why Japanese are so successful even after being destroyed uh, uh, after Second World War, because they listen more, they talk less, they watch more, and they keep a smile on their face. So I thought I should do the same thing Since I'm in a new country, in a new land, new culture, so there's a lot to learn, a lot to observe, a lot to see. But keep your your mouth shut, watch more, learn more. But I enjoyed my time very much in New York City. And then a friend of mine from the same military boarding school invited me to visit Dallas, Texas. And um, growing, growing up watching Wild Wild West movies, I could not resist that invitation. I was so excited to see that cowboys, ranches, yeah. bars with their famous swinging doors. <laughs> though, though I never did find one.
1: Nope, they're all gone. They're all gone.
0: But uh, that brought me into Texas uh, before 9-11. I loved it very much. The long highways, the big house, you know, the weather was very warm, like back home. I loved it.
1: So that's fascinating. I, I want to go back to a couple things before we move on. One is that you and I share uh, a large family. I'm one of a, one of 12 kids. I have 11 siblings.
0: Wow. Nice. And
1: it was very much like what you described, where we were all... So from, from the age of... When I turned... God, I couldn't have been over 10 or 11. When I was... Old enough to begin taking care of someone else, I did, right? And so each one of us had someone that was younger that we took care of. And that lasted until I left home at 19. For nine years, I had at least one sibling that was younger that I would take care of. The only (laughs) thing we were not allowed to do was discipline them, right? (laughs) But everything else, when I got up in the morning and I got dressed, I would get them dressed. When I got my breakfast, I would get their breakfast. When I got my lunch, I would get their lunch, and that was really the only way. I mean, honestly, it's the only way my parents are still alive today is that they were is that they were able to kind of delegate some of those responsibilities. You know, obviously they they deserve so much credit for uh, you know having so many kids. Although I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But whenever people are like, "Oh my God, it's so crazy that you have twelve kids," I'm like, "Well, some of the." Some of the uh, applause should come over here because we, we, I was (laughs) taking care of children almost full time from the time I was 10, 11 on. But I love that you also come from a uh, large family.
0: And you know, that also uh, teaches you at a very young age about sharing responsibility. You know, you're not the only, you know, child in the house, you have to learn. How to share, how to share responsibility, how to take care of each other, sacrifice a lot of good things you know you and I learned at our young age because we grew up in a big family.
1: Yep, yeah. I mean, Mike, I have three kids and I love them to death. You know, they, the, one of them, they all want their own room, right? And I'm yeah. like, I didn't get my own room. Not that I, not that we have to, you know, one for one with how I grew up. That's not what I'm saying, but I didn't get my own room until I was 17, I had my own room for a year and a half before I left the house for 17 years, I shared a room with up to, so there's, uh, eight boys and four girls. And for most of that time, all of us, all the boys lived in one big bedroom. It was massive. It was like, a, you know, it was like a, it was a big room that was supposed to be, you know, some sort of a, like a living room or whatever in our house. Um, And I grew up in Guatemala. I was born in upstate New York, but my dad is Guatemalan and we moved there for 10 years. And yeah, so that's all I remember. So yeah, there was this, you know, and I can even see some of my siblings. I've always had like a high level of responsibility. Like I can't not take care of other people and it actually gets me into trouble sometimes. But I, 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 I remember, yeah, just feeling very, you know, feeling the weight of responsibility, like making sure that even... We call them our kids, the ones yeah. that we took care of. Even outside of my kid, I would make sure that other people you know, have what they need. And I can see the direct effect of growing up that way, the good, the bad, and the ugly on my life today and how I take care of a lot of people and things. And again, going back to my what I said at the beginning, my sense of justice, like I always want to fix everything, right? That's directly right. tied back to you know when I was a kid and there was so much to fix, right, with 12 kids um, trying to fix everything. And and you said you're you're from a devout Muslim family. Yeah, talk to me about. I mean, you talked about how kind you were and how you're giving away your mom's clothes. Like, what what was that household like? What were the kinds of things that were instilled uh, in all of you? Did it did some of you gravitate more toward it than others? Talk to me about that dynamic uh, in your house growing up.
0: Well, charity and giving was a big part of our family. Every month, my um, my maternal grandfather would come to our house and, um, you know, prepare a big meal to give it to poor people. That Mm -hmm. was a monthly ritual. So, you know, growing up as a little kid, if you see how your family is highly involved in charity and giving, that actually, you know... um, put something into your mind that this is part of your life. This is part of your, your family giving and kindness, charity. And it's not all about what you get, what you are consuming every day, but also what you are doing for others. I mm. think that building a, a, a tremendous strong foundation uh, in all of our brothers and sisters mind in our life. So that was a big part of our family giving and kindness. And also forgiveness was a big part of our family as well, because, Back in the 1971 war, where, you know, during our independence war, uh, my family was actually uh, brutally tortured by the Pakistani military uh, entire night. Wow. And, uh, and uh, right before they were about to, the military, were, military was about to execute our family, I mean, my, my father and a few of our relatives, they finally asked them one question. And um, that question was a life-saving question. The the person who gave wrong information about our family finally said, no, this family did not harbor any of the gorillas. I just made it up. And Mm. because of of that last statement, my father and my uncle and there were some family members in our house, they all survived because of the last point, last moment statement. So every year during uh, December 16, which is the victory day, my mother would tell us this story, and she would also tell she would also tell us that how my parents forgive the Pakistani military because of their you know uh, bad behavior because of the what they did to us, and so I I heard this story from a very young age how my parents are so forgiving even though they suffered so much. So you can imagine as a child, I heard about forgiveness. I heard about, I, I saw giving, I took part in that charity kindness. So it was, a, you know, part of my, my growing. And also uh, there were classmates, friends from other faiths, like uh, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians. And we never questioned each other that you're telling me more about your faith, or my faith is better than yours, or your one is down. We never talked about it. We always talked about the common grounds. We saw each other as just human beings and friends. I think that helped a lot uh, growing up as well, treating everyone as humans, not as who they are, as who they worship, where they come from. So that was a part of my childhood. And uh, I remember one thing my, my parents taught me before I left for the military boarding school that... From now onward, you will be growing up with a bunch of kids. And many times, you know, um, you may may get hurt. You may feel angry because some kids, you know, might not treat you kindly with respect. In a situation like that, the first thing you should do, put a zipper on your mouth. Hmm. Control your tongue that will not only deescalate the situation, it would also give you enough time to think through it. And once you take time, you would be able to respond wisely. And once you take time, the other person who hurt you will get a chance to realize as well that I was so nasty, so mean to him, but he did not retaliate, he did not say anything right away. He would come back to you today or tomorrow. But if you respond right away, the cycle of hurting each other, it starts right there. And it will grow up, it will grow more and more and it might go out of control. So take your time, forgive, move forward. And if you ever struggle to show mercy and kindness, leave it up to God and or to the justice system or to the authority, but you never ever take any revenge, you move
1: forward. It's, it's no wonder to me that in these last, you know, 20 years, we're getting to that story now that you've responded the way that you're doing. And and it also, you know, as someone who is raising three young kids and we're trying so hard to, uh, instill so many of the things that you just shared, um, with them, things that we want to, I, I want it, I want it to be ingrained so deeply in their hearts and mind and minds and souls Um, And and I'm I'm grateful that we're seeing, you know, in real time and you telling your story that it matters. It matters what parents teach consistently and not just what they say with their mouths, but what they model with their lives. Right. Because it would be one thing if your parents told you all of that. But then regarding the Pakistani army or regarding other people that have done them you know, it, you know, uh, hurt them or said terrible things about them in their past that they treated them poorly. Well, then you're just going to see, well, that's just a bunch of bullshit because you didn't actually live up. You know, you said something, but then you didn't live it. But when you see that beautiful mix of saying it and then doing it, it's a rare thing today. I mean, that's just the bottom line is that we're so, it's so rare to see someone live with that integrity. Um, but again, you just sharing how you grew up with your parents, that relationship, what they taught you and then what they lived out. Um, Yeah, it's no wonder, it's no wonder. You know,
0: because this is important what we learn in our childhood, that actually build our base. And in course of time, we build more on top of that. But if your base is not strong enough, it doesn't matter what you build afterward on top of that, it can go higher and higher, but if your base is not strong, it cannot sustain. That's why what we learn in our childhood, it is important. And for parents, it is extremely important what they teach to their children at a very young age. And if we do not teach our child, our kids giving, kindness, generosity, love, forgiveness, before they're exposed to racism, intolerance, and hate, most likely. You know, it will be hard to uh, teach all those good qualities once they're broken, once they're beyond repair, and that's why it's important what we teach our children.
1: Yeah, it's 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 so true. I, I I deal a lot with this is the way I describe it. You know, because a lot of the people that listen to this podcast, we have people of all ages, but it's mostly you know millennials, right? Uh, it, it, I would say more like eighteen to forty. And I just feel like all I'm doing is helping people undo and unravel all the terrible shit they've learned in their lives, right? Like, if it's kids, kids get it. My three kids, they get let's give a damn. They get kindness. They get, I mean, they are they are already at a young age. They um, are, you know, they could give you anti-war arguments. Uh, they are against the death penalty. Um, they love all, you know what I'm saying? So they get it, they get it, but trying to convince adults that, uh, uh, war is not going to get us what we want. Right. And we're going to spend, you know, so much more, uh, time resources, lives, and we're not going to actually get something, but we could actually figure something out or that the death penalty doesn't work or that, you know, all these things don't work. Like, it's so much harder because we have these bad habits and these bad ways of thinking that we've spent not just years, but in some cases, decades really instilling in us, right? Really. And and, and a lot of that does go back to shaky foundation when they're kids, parents that aren't really present uh, for whatever reason, sometimes there's valid reasons, you know, right, you lose, right. lose a parent, single mom or whatever, like that's hard. But in the case of, you know, where there, there are uh, two parents or one parent that's very involved. Like, it's just so important to as much as we can get it right. And then the areas where we don't get it right. You know, my kids also know that I am incredibly imperfect, but they know that whenever I mess up, I'm going to come get on my knees, apologize, you know, hug it out, tell them that I am trying to do better. Sorry, everybody's got a LaCroix burp into their microphone. Sorry about that. Um, and yeah, it's so, it's so important. It's so important. Um,
0: I mean, even though you mentioned that most of the, you know, audience are from the age 18 to 40 plus, yes, they are not parents today, but tomorrow many of them will become parents. And it is important for them to know this, that when they become parents, that this is what they need to do they need to teach their children more about kindness giving love and forgiveness before those kids are exposed to the you know the qualities that will bring harm to them and to their parents as well and even you know um, it's never too late to learn the right thing many of us did not have a good childhood for many reasons as you mentioned but as long as we are willing to give a try yeah and, and, uh, you know, find some role models, learn more, more about their lives, how they overcome the difficulties, the challenges it may help us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Like the, uh, I think it's just, I don't remember who said this or if it's just a proverb out there, but you know, they say like the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. Yes. Like, even if, even if we have not done well, and even if like, there's always time to change, And that's why this platform exists. Let's give a damn. And that's why your thing exists, World Without Hate, because there's always time. Uh, I mean, even in the case of, and we'll get to your story, but with Mark, right? You know, the way that Mark responded to you on September 21, 2001, and the day that Mark responded to you on the day that he was, you know, right around the time that he was executed, worlds apart, right? That came from you being an example to him, and his world view, uh, even though his is, you know, it, it came to what it was, like he was able to change even in the in in the situation that he was in. So, um, so okay, let's 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 move on here for, for a minute. Uh
0: you moved to when did you move to New York? Three months before nine eleven terrorist attacks. Sorry, uh, I moved to New York um in sorry. I moved to New York in nineteen ninety nine, February right. of February,
1: February, 1999, February of 1999. You stayed there for a couple of years. You moved to Dallas three months before the nine 11 attacks. Right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. And so you are still, even at two years and, and, you know, two and a half years being here, you're still new to this country. You're still figuring stuff out. Um, obviously on September 11, 2001, you had no idea what was going to happen 10 days from then. So. As a, yeah, as someone who is relatively new to the country, having been in New York City, having just moved to Dallas, how did you experience what happened on September 11, 2001? What was your sort of a physical and emotional journey on that day from, you know, based on what you were seeing and feeling and, you know, just what we knew at that point about what was happening?
0: Well, I remember September 11 was Tuesday, my day off. I was working in a, in a friend's gas station. And um, every Tuesday, I didn't have to get up before dawn to get ready and open the gas station to brew, cold, to brew coffee, uh, put cold tamales and hot dog in a heater, and organize the Dallas Morning News on a shelf every Tuesday I could sleep a little longer. On that Tuesday, while I began making breakfast, I turned on the TV, and saw one of the Twin Towers got hit by a plane. And I thought it was a trailer of an upcoming Hollywood movie. But then when I saw the second tower got hit, the movie thought vanished from my mind, and I realized something terrible just happened in New York City my first love, my first home Mm. in my my adopted country. And uh, seeing the devastation and suffering of people, I was in shock, horrified, and sucked into fear of unknown. Even though I had nothing to do with 9-11, but uh, I was fixated on the news as... Just came barreling toward the twin towers and Pentagon, and as I watched the towers fell and um, speculation began about the perpetrators, I couldn't help but begin to worry. Mm. And um, within a short time, for many of us, the horror, fear, and violence just begins with the fall of the twin towers. And uh, many customers came angry at me, taunting me, harassing, and threatening. And I was so afraid that I told my boss that, that please, de- please activate the decoy security cameras and put two clerks on shift. But unfortunately he did neither. And within four days after 9-11 terrorist attacks, a shop owner at a nearby store was murdered. And nobody knew who did that and why he was killed. And happened to be he was a Muslim man. So I was extremely afraid that there there might be someone in this area who already started taking revenge against Muslims, people from Middle Eastern descent, And to be honest with you, uh, three nights in a row, I dreamed that I was being shot in my own gas station. That was a signal to me that something bad might happen, get out of this gas station. But I felt for my friend that if I quit, he'd be in trouble. So I kept working there and I told my friend about my dream, about my fear and he said, since you've been thinking too much about nine eleven, about the shooting incident, about the murder, just stay low. Do not argue with the customers; those who are angry, just ignore them. You'll be you'll be fine. I,
1: man, I feel that that just feels so heavy. What you just shared, like I can't imagine. Um, yeah, the speculation happened really quickly. And I can remember even as a, um, how old was I? September 11, 2001. I was 17. You know, even as a teenager, you know, 20 years ago now, I I remember very vividly the kinds of conversations that were beginning to take place. At the time, my parents were part of a very conservative christian evangelical movement and unfortunately it was many of those people it was i i don't know if i could say mainly white evangelical christians but a good chunk of the people that were taking these speculations and blowing them up to epic proportions and saying things that were horrific and untrue and assuming things about not just the not just these criminals but also anybody that adheres to the muslim faith i remember back then even even Though I was in it, I was never okay with conservative evangelicalism. Ask my parents. I gave them hell every, you know, every which way about the different things they would tell us to do and, hey, we don't do this and we do do that. I was always pushing back. And I remember feeling very conflicted about what I was hearing, the kinds of conversations that were taking place. So I can't imagine, I was troubled by it. I can't imagine the pressure of, you know, you feeling like something's going to happen. And if we're being honest, you moved, you know, not that there weren't uh, Islamophobic attacks that happened here in, the, in New York City. I live in New York City, but I think we know that they happen. they happened more frequently in places like Texas, right? So you had just moved there, right? Really hoping for, you know, this kind of, you know, this American dream to sort of happen, and then this happens and you're feeling very unsafe. And I feel very badly that you felt that way. And, you know, um, the store owner right down the street that was murdered and these dreams that you had um, it feels very and here, terrible.
0: And here, I would say one more thing that even though I was afraid, but I also thought about I'm far away from New York City from the ground zero. Oh, Maybe wow. yeah. Maybe I, I will not, maybe I will not face that kind of retaliation, what people in New York City might face. I'm far away. But when this Muslim you know, shop owner was murdered, that time I realized I am no longer safe, And it did not take that long to realize my life in America would never be the same.
1: So, September twenty one. 10 days after september 11 uh you're at work at this gas station um and mark stroman walks in um i mean i know this i'm sure you've had to share this account you know endless number of times over the last 20 years but as much as you can share
0: what happened with us well september 21st it was Friday. Um, raiding cats and dogs since morning around uh, 12 o'clock business was pretty slow I picked up the Dallas Morning News going to the headlines which I used to do on a regular basis when business business was slow I would just read the newspaper as part of my habit to see what's happening here locally nationally, internationally and suddenly I saw through the glass window that a customer walking in towards their gas station, but he looked a little different, wearing a bandana, sunglasses, wearing a baseball cap, pointing, holding something on his right waist, black, shiny. So from my previous robbery experience, I thought, oh Lord, there'd be another robbery today at noon, 12 o'clock. So as soon as he walked in, he pointed that shotgun directly at my face And I was already ready by the time putting all the money on the counter and I begged him not to shoot me. But the money I placed on the counter in exchange for my life remained untouched. His gaze remained fixed. And I felt a cold air flow through my spine why he's not taking the money, why he's not living right away. Mm. If If he's here to rob, the money's right there. But then he asked me a question, where are you from? And that time I felt he is not here for the money, he's here for me. And before I could say anything more than excuse me, he pulled the trigger from point blank range. I felt it first like million bees resting in my face. And then I heard the sound, the explosion. I looked down and saw blood pouring like an open faucet from the right side of my head. Frantically and instinctively, I placed both hands on my head, thinking I had to keep my brain from spilling out. And I remember screaming, mom, on top of my voice. And I looked left, saw the gunman still standing there, pointing the gun still at my face. My military instinct kicking right there. And I I thought if I did not appear to be dying, he would shoot me again. I fell to the floor, and after a few seconds, he he finally left, leaving me, Dead on a cold concrete convenience store floor. I didn't know what to do at that moment. I thought I was dying. I grabbed the phone, but I could not dial 911. I was shaking so badly. And I was afraid to go out because I thought he might shoot me in the parking lot again. But I was bleeding so badly, I thought. I just cannot stay inside and die here. I have to get out. So I ran to the barbershop next door. Three men inside looked at me in horror, assuming the gunman was right behind me. They tried to escape to the emergency exit door. I begged grabbing one of them. I said, please call 911. I am dying and I don't wanna die today. And I caught myself in the mirror The image reflected back was gruesome, like something straight out of a horror movie. And I couldn't believe that was my face. In an instant it takes to pull the trigger, I had become disfigured, losing blood and strength rapidly, fighting to stay awake, fighting to stay alive. And I thought, I'm dying. Like, I'm gonna die, I'm not ready to go. I have to do anything, everything in my capacity to stay awake. I'm not gonna give up. I'm not gonna lie down for help, but I would keep, keep myself available for ambulance. So I came out on the parking lot and I was running from one side to the other looking for ambulance. And I was lucky. The ambulance arrived within a few minutes Hmm. And as soon as I saw the ambulance, I started running towards it, taking off my shirts, shoes. And on my way to the hospital, I began losing consciousness. And at that moment, images of my mother, my father, all my siblings, and my fiance appeared before my eyes. And then a the graveyard. And I felt my time was up. And that's why I, I was seeing their faces for the last time and then i will be gone from this world. My mouth was moving like a machine reciting all the verses from the Quran I memorized so far, begging God, please do not take me today. It's too early. I have not seen anything, I've not done anything, I have a lot of promise to keep. Please give me a chance and I promise if you give me a chance to live, I will do good things with my life. I will dedicate my life for the poor, needy, and the bright. but don't take me to that place.
1: That's, uh, that's a wild feeling that you feel yourself fading out and you don't know if you'll wake up and you think you're gone and you're begging to stay. When did you, how long was it after that, that you
0: realized that your life was spared? After I was taken to the hospital, I remember, uh, I was up for next few hours. I could not see anything, but I could hear slightly the doctor's, nurse's conversation Uh, didn't make any sense to me. I just heard sounds. And at some point I lost my consciousness. And the next thing I remember asking, where am I? Because I thought I died. And uh, my jaw was almost stuck from the gunshot I couldn't open my eyes. And I was anxiously waited to hear something. I thought now, according to Islamic faith, some angels would come and confront me. And uh, so I was very scared. And within a few seconds, I heard, good morning, mister Puyan, you you're in the hospital. Mm. It was one of the most beautiful moments in my life, my eyes were full of tears, not from the pain, but from the joy of still being alive. It doesn't matter, you're in the hospital, you're in a prison, you're on the street, but you are still alive. That is the most beautiful thing, that we are alive. And I felt this beautiful feeling at that moment That I did not die, I'm still alive. I can go back to my family, I can go back to my mother, to my loved ones. I can still see the beauty of this world. I can go back to my friends. I can do many things because I'm still alive. But that happiness did not last for long. Within a few hours, in the hospital, which was private and expensive, and I did not have health insurance at that time. To so the discharge, me and asked me to arrange follow-up medical treatments on my own. The second part of my American nightmare just began.
1: That's another really tough thing about i didn't know that part of your story that they discharged you because you didn't have insurance one of the things if you follow me for any length of time on social media um you'll know that one of the things that i want to see changed in my lifetime is universal health care it's it's absolutely and entirely without a doubt one of the most insane things that we've embraced in this country that not everyone deserves healthcare. Um and you experienced that. Thankfully, I've, you know, I've had to go to the hospital and I hate the, you know, humongous hospital bills that I walk out with even with insurance, but you experienced I've never I've never experienced uh uh, you know, going to the hospital and them making me leave when I had when I had life-threatening injuries because I didn't have insurance. Like that's very, very screwed up.
0: Well, it's a it's a shame that we are one of the richest countries in the world. We spend trillions of dollars on many unnecessary things where our citizens, our fellow citizens, die from lack of medical treatment. It's a shame that the people they pay tax. They support to grow our economy. They move this country, but in the end, they they suffer from quality healthcare. It's a shame. We are not one of the yep. poorest countries in the world that we cannot afford. We can very well afford. It's just a matter of intention.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's it's uh, it's funny that we're even talking about this today just three hours ago i tweeted the following i said well and i was thinking about it because of um di- you know different I, I, different stories that i've seen lately of i mean i didn't know you're you were going to share that but different friends of mine that haven't been able to get treatment because of lack of health insurance i, I tweeted we'll always find money to pay for the things that matter to us mm-hmm. like for example how the united states can't find money to pay for universal health care but always finds money to pay for our unnecessarily massive military, um, right? Like we have we have 600 military bases around the world, you know, uh, a bipartisan approval, Democrats and Republicans just approved the $800 billion, you know, uh, uh, budget raise for the military. Like, but then anytime conversations around, can we take care of people better, right? Can we take care of them through the pandemic, can we uh, provide health care? Can we erase student loans? All these things. It's like, nope, that's on them. you got to take care of your own shit. But then, right, when it comes to military and these endless wars that we've been engaging in for as long as this place is, this country's been a country, there's always money for that.
0: Well, it, it boils my blood, and uh, it makes me angry as well that the poor and the working class citizens of this country they were always, they always suffer, they're still suffering, well while, you know, as you mentioned that we find money to go to war, to do unnecessary things. I mean, we borrowed $2 trillion to fund this Afghan war and our, and on, on top of that, we paid $500 billion as interest and this loan we will have to continue, we'll have to pay until 2050 so we could borrow money to run a war, $2 trillion. So why we could not borrow some money to provide quality health care, to come up with, them, take care of the students, to pay their you know, uh, student loans, to take good care of our citizens, why we cannot do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm 100% on board. It's, it's, it's frankly, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, and again, it's more ridiculous that it's a bipartisan thing you know, like even our current, you know, president who is a breath of fresh air from the last <laughs> one in my, in my humble opinion, you know, he, 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 he advocates against universal health care. He wants it obviously to become more accessible, but it's like, dude, we have, we have so many other countries that are modeling for us what it looks like to give all of your citizens healthcare. Like if you don't have health, You know, I, I even advocate for, I I go as far as saying housing is a, is a human right. Like all these things, right? We could, we could eradicate, we could er eradicate homelessness like tomorrow, but let's just start with the very basic. I can live on the street, right? Hundreds of thousands of people do it every night. But if you don't have your health, you have nothing. That's all you have. If you're not healthy, uh, you will either die or have a terrible quality of life. Like healthcare is the most basic human right. And we have this, we're living in the shittiest version of it here in this country. It's, it's, it's really wild. Pure politics. Um, Yeah. I mean, it is, it's theater, right? And, and, you know, again, we, we can find money for the things that we want always. Uh, What, what is your uh, recovery? I I, want to move toward, you know, the, the really not that this, not that up until this point, it hasn't been really powerful and meaningful because it has, I'm blown away and very emotional, but like, I want to get to world without hate and I want to get to the things that I want to get to you advocating for Mark Stroman, even when he, you know, most people I assume said, don't do that. He deserves what's get, you know, coming to him. Um, what was your, what was your recovery like? Cause you did, you know, you did say that you got discharged and you had basically, they said you're on your own figure it out. What, what
0: was, what did that look like? Well, as a result of this shooting, I received more than three dozen shotgun pellets in my face, and I'm still carrying them today. I, I went through several eye surgeries, and unfortunately, though, I lost vision in one eye, mm. and my face and skull kept with more than three dozen shotgun pellets. I lost my home, my job. My sense of security and my fiancé, but mm. gained, but gained more than sixty thousand dollars in medical bills.
1: <laughs>
0: and when my father heard what happened to me, he suffered a stroke, but thankfully survived. I reached up to the Red Cross, but they told me that I was only qualified for one week's worth of groceries. It's not a single that, that goes by that I'm not reminded or impacted by this terrible tragedy. But I continue to make peace with my pain. The recovery process was long. Um, I had to wait for at least a couple of weeks to find the doctor who would treat me before receiving assurance he would be paid. And um, when, I felt, when I felt a little better, I began working at a, uh, at a restaurant, attending school at the same time. Uh, a Muslim man from the local mosque gave me scholarship to attend school. And a Christian doctor who had to perform surgeries before receiving assurance, he began treating me. People from you know, many kind and caring Americans came forward. A, and the year first veteran Gave me his extra car. And I was blown away at that. That this is the America. Warm, welcoming, generous, hospitable. That's what you dreamed of. That's what you dreamed of. Before coming to U.S. But at that point, when I started getting, when I was receiving the kindness, support from fellow Americans, it renewed my, you know, my faith in humanity. It renewed my faith in American people that yes, it was only one man who did this heinous crime and there are millions of kind, caring, loving Americans out there. And that's what I experienced later on when people started coming and supporting in my recovery process. And that's the time I real, I felt that this is the America that I heard so much about growing up back home. And now I'm um, Experiencing that, that kindness, that generosity, that uh, hospitality. So, by the mercy of God and with the help of many kind and caring Americans, I was eventually able to get my life back on track. And I would love to say this thing real quick that when I started working in a restaurant, it was um, it you know uh, not something. Uh, I had to go the extra mile because I never, ever served in a restaurant. I had a strong accent and I was blinded in one eye. So for someone mm-hmm. like, like this, you know, um, uh, with all these physical disability, the trauma, the anxiety, the fear of getting you know killed again by someone like Mark Stroman, uh, it was always there. And on top of that, I had a strong accent and I was new to Texas. So I had to go the extra mile. And uh, during my interview process, the manager asked me, you never work in a restaurant. Why should I hire you and put you on the floor? And I said that if you give me a chance, I promise, you will find me as one of your best assets. Give me just a chance. And I will prove that Mm. you did the right thing by hiring me, but give me a chance, please. So he gave me a chance, put me on a training, and I kept my word even though alcohol was haram to me, was not legal, was not allowed for me as a Muslim man. Yeah. But I became the highest alcohol seller many times in that restaurant. Thinking my God would not get crazy, would not, you know, uh, get mad at me because I was selling alcohol to survive. I was not consuming. I was selling to survive. And, um, While working in the restaurant, I was able to overcome my fear of people, improving my people skill, speaking quality. I bought booklets to learn how to talk Texan, to bond with the locals. That's one of my mentors taught me that if you want to get good tips, you need to talk the way your your guest talks. Absolutely. If you don't know their language, if you don't know what what, uh, interests them, you, you may never get good tips. So you need to find ways to bond with them. So that booklet, it truly helped me to learn some of the local terms, like yao, you know, yep. fixing time, you know, don't be ugly, uh, those kind of things. RST, <laughs> RST, instead of saying iced tea, which I messed a few times, Rosie, Austin, Martini, and IST are not the same things, two different things. So that's how, you know, I I survived. So I had to transfer myself from Airman to stork Clark,
1: to a waiter to survive. You know, I'm thinking about, um, you know, Mark intended to kill you. That was his point. And we know that for a few reasons. One, he, he shoved a shotgun in your face, but two, you weren't his first victim, right? He was on a killing spree, right? right. Like he had already, he, you, you were his third victim and the other two died. So he had every intention of killing you. And I'm so grateful that he failed in this case. Right. But what he, he he was not caught after the first two. Um, What, what did it look like for him to get caught? How did they catch him? You know, after he shot you, what did, what did that look like?
0: Well, Mark, (coughs) sorry for this. (coughs) Well, um, Mark shows all these uh, gas stations and convenience store uh, based on that there was no security camera, no security device. And in our station, we had a security camera, but it was not activated yet. Uh, so after my shooting incident, the local detectives uh, came to my house and uh, showed me uh, hundreds of pictures of, uh, you know, people with a criminal background, and it was tough for me to go through these pictures and pinpoint because I didn't want to point on the wrong person. And to be sure, honest, with yeah. it, and many of them look like same to me. It was painful for me to go through this this process and to identify my my attacker. So finally I was able to pinpoint four and then they came back to me again and I was able to narrow it down to two. So now they have two suspects and when he killed Mr. Patel on October the 4th, in his station, they had a hidden security camera. And... uh, so the same detective, uh, same detectives went to that gas station and collected the footage, and they were able to uh, see the shooter. And luckily, um, one of the customers of that gas station uh, heard the shooting incident, and uh, he he came forward saying that I wanted to see the footage because one of my um, employee was talking about you know, uh, doing some, something bad to people, to foreigners, and uh, he was angry at Muslims, at immigrants. Uh, it might be him, but I want to take a look. So he saw the footage and he said that, yes, it looks like he's one of my employees. And um, the pictures I, um, I pinpointed from those hundreds of pictures, so it matched and they were able to identify that, okay, Mark is the is the person who shot me and also who did this, uh, with the other crimes. And um, on September on October the fifth, the the Dallas Police Department went to his house, and they were so lucky that he was about to about to pull out of his garage going for the next mission, and it was oh, wow. it was Friday, and he was going out to kill as many people at a local mall where many foreigners, people, Hispanic, immigrant, Muslims background they go to. And from there, his plan was to go to a local mosque after the weekly Juma prayer. His plan was to open fire, but he was apprehended right there when he was pulling out of his garage. And um, I was told that that way he reacted at that time it was bizarre that he was smiling. He was crying. He was going through ups and downs to this emotional uh, meltdown, but it's good that he was finally apprehended before he was about to go for his next attacks.
1: I mean, talk about in the nick of time, right? Like, I mean, just think about all the events that had to take place. You recognizing the photo, unfortunately the the other person that he you know the footage from the gas station of the other person that he murdered like all those things had to happen at the exact right time for them to get there to apprehend what sounds like he he was about to kill many more people than he already had absolutely um so thank god that that happened and so they apprehend him so wild that's so wild um they apprehend him and then you know, o- over the course of his trial, he is sentenced to death row. And you, right? Again, most people, um, I assume, were thinking, Mark is going to get what's coming to him. He killed all these people. We should kill him. And I'm vehemently opposed to the death penalty. But that's what, how a lot of people think. Even people that are good, upstanding, Christian, whatever people are very pro, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of idea. And so he's headed for, he's on death row, and you launched this, you know, international, widespread, humongous campaign to stop that from happening. That's wild that you would, you know, maybe... Maybe it makes more sense for even somebody else to do that, for somebody to partner with you and to say, hey, I know this is probably like really kind of a massive thing for you. We're going to advocate for this, whatever. Like I could see a number of other scenarios playing out. But you, one of his victims advocating for this, and even though um, he was still put to death and your campaign wasn't successful. Talk us through for a minute or two, why? like why do that? Why advocate this man killed people? shouldn't he be killed in return? What was the impetus behind you saying no, give him life in prison, give him anything, but don't
0: take his life. That's not right Well, I was able to forgive my attack on mark. Uh, because of my upbringing and my Islamic faith. Uh, And also in order to move forward, to rebuild my life, not to see myself as a victim for the rest of my life. And also uh, not just bitter, angry. And that was the right thing to do, to forgive and move forward. But I never felt it was enough. Because as Mm. as I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation that I learned about the power, beauty, and benefit of forgiveness at a very young age. So when I forgive my attacker after I got got my life back, I never felt that it was enough. And when I went to Mecca for pilgrimage in 2009, eight years later of the shooting incident, I kept thinking about my shooting incident and my attacker sitting on death row waiting to die. And I deeply realized that By killing him, we would simply lose a human life without dealing with the root cause.
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: I began to see him as a human being like me, not just a killer. I began to see him as a victim as well. I suffered terribly, but did not see any value in him suffering as well. Mm -hmm. I, I know what it feels like to be on the brink of death, pleading to God for a second chance. How could I then deprive another human being of life? He's another human being like me. His crime did not cancel his humanity. He definitely did some heinous, heinous crimes, but he's still a human being like me. I saw myself in his situation. If I were him, what would I expect from the rest of the world and the people I heard? And I thought, I need to go the extra mile to save this human slide so that he would get a chance to walk on the road of redemption and justice, while helping many people in the free world to learn from his own mistake. And that would be the true benefit and balance between redemption and justice. By killing him, we would not not gain anything. And in Islam, it says that once you forgive, it is good. But once you forgive, it meant we're closer to God. Mm. There is a verse in the Quran, chapter five, verse thirty-two. It says that taking a human life is like taking the life of all humankind, and saving the life of one human is like saving the life of all humankind. My faith dictates me right there: that go the extra mile, try your best to save this person's life and transform negatives into positives, setting new narratives, that we all need to get beyond our bitter experience to build a better world, build a world without hate, where we all can respect each other as human beings. So I felt that was the right thing to do, to go the extra mile, to do my best with the help of fellow Christians, Jewish, induced Muslims, atheists, to try and to try and save my attackers' life from a Texas death row, and I returned from Mecca, and I launched a global campaign, and uh, with the help of Amnesty International, with the help of help of Reprieve, it's a London-based nonprofit organization. We took our campaign to the European Union and German parliaments, as well as the headquarters of Lundbeck the lethal injection manufacturer in Denmark, where we were able to convince them to write a letter to the governor of Texas not to use their product to kill human beings. And at the end of our visit, Lundbeck announced that they they would supply, they would stop supplying this drug to the U.S. prisons that carrying out executions. We also petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court asking for clemency for my attacker, Mark. And uh, I was told that he was stunned. He was reduced to tears once he heard that one of his victims was running a campaign to save his life while he never, ever said sorry to any of his victims and their loved ones. He never apologized, but then he was forgiven. And now people are trying to save his life. He was beyond... uh, surprised he he was shocked in a very positive way It's, it's
1: remarkable um not just that you advocated for mark but also these other things that happened you know you taking it to the extent that you did you could have just written a letter to the then governor, Rick Perry, right. And said, Hey, you know, this is what I want. This is what needs to happen. You could have done something and that would have been admirable enough, but you went above and beyond, you know, to the point where you went to the company that makes the lethal injection medicine and said, don't do this. And they agreed like that's, that's, you know, pretty massive. Um,
0: well, you know, I mean, here's a good point that these tell, I mean, this tells that uh, I was and I'm still a simple, ordinary human being. And this is the power of simple, ordinary human beings that once we are motivated, once we are passionate yep. about something, we can go the extra mile. We, yep. we, Each of us have this kind of capacity and the power. We don't have to be celebrity, wealthy, powerful, rich. We all can... Do things to make a bigger impact in this world. Sometimes people say, well, I'm just a simple human, being. what can I do? Well, yes, we all are simple, normal human beings, but we have the capacity to go the extra mile.
1: Yeah, I love that idea. I mean, that's very, let's give a damn, like, yeah. that everybody has, Every everybody has something that they contribute. It might not be this, you know, because again, you were, you were a a gas station worker in Dallas, Texas, you know, immigrant from Bangladesh. You were not—you didn't come from, you know, the, You know, rich, famous parents. You weren't part of—you know, you're not a movie star. You're not a this. You're not a that. You were just the guy that got shot in the face. And I don't say just to demean who you are because I think the world of you. But you are just the guy that got shot in the face and decided, I'm going to go the extra mile here. I could pray for his soul. I could— Write a letter to the governor. I could do these small things, and you were like, actually, there's an extra mile that needs to be taken here. This is worth it. It's so mind-boggling to me how a nation that, again, I know, you know, we're not a Christian nation, the United States of America, but this nation that people talk about as this Christian nation, you know, and if we go back to the Christian values, right, Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. Those are the two great commandments, right? Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And... Yet, going back to these last 20 years, 9-11 to right now, we've officially, uh, you know, we we very poorly ended the 20-year war, but the the war is officially over, at least on paper, right? And over the last 20 years, right, 2,977 people were murdered on September eleven, horrible tragedy. But 900,000 people. Have been murdered over the last 20 years because of this 20-year war. 364,000 of them were civilians. Had nothing to do with the shit that was going on between these two uh, really fucked up ideologies on both ends. 364,000 innocent men, women, and children were murdered. It just doesn't make sense. This eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you killed somebody so we should kill you. It doesn't make sense. Faith or not faith involved. Thankfully, we have a faith that we can learn from, right? And that we, we can fall back on. But even if you don't have the faith, you even said to yourself, you had, you know, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, and atheists. You had people that reject the notion that there is a higher power out there saying, this is not right. right? right. We can't live this way. What, to, 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 what do we get out of it? Texas is still, there's only a handful of states that have abolished the death penalty. Most of our states still, they might not practice it actively, but they haven't shut off that faucet. They still are, like, open to the idea of, hey, that person killed somebody or raped somebody or did this. We should kill them. That's a good idea. And it never, ever accomplishes. Like, what does it actually accomplish? Nothing. It actually makes us, uh, you know, more deeply hateful and resentful. And we're not actually getting to this point where we can embrace forgiveness and move forward. There's no moving forward when you kill somebody because they killed somebody. There is actual moving forward when you're the person that almost was killed by Mark. And you can say, okay, I not only want to forgive you in my heart, but I actually don't want you to die and I'm going to do something about it. That's pretty intense.
0: Well, you know, um, If you look at the death penalty, who goes to the death chamber, will see there's a pattern, it's always the poor, the weak, the vulnerable. Yep. And uh, instead of putting people into execution chamber, why we cannot solve the root causes because of which they end up killing people in the first place. That's it. We can talk, we can talk about gun violence all day long. Right, we can talk about poverty. We can talk about systemic. We can talk about systemic racism. We can talk about, you know, um, uh, you know, um, the job issue, the the job issues, the inequality. There are many things we can yeah. talk about because of which people end up going into the wrong direction. Like my attacker, for example, he had his first parole officer at the age of twelve. What went, wrong in the, what went wrong in the family, in the school, in the neighborhood, in the society? That A 12-year-old boy had his first parole officer. At the age of 12, I left home to attend a, one of the prestigious boarding school to build a better future. And here in the U.S., one of the most richest countries in the world, the superpower, why kids in this country would go to prison at the age of 12? Something is wrong somewhere. Let's fix those instead of putting people behind bars, instead of putting people in the execution chamber, keeping the machine, continuing running days after days, months after months. That shows our intention. Are we truly fighting to to solve the issues or we are just fighting symptoms? To me, it seems like we're fighting symptoms, not the issues, not the root causes of all the issues. Back to the other point that we lost almost 3,000, you know, uh, our fellow brothers and sisters on the day of 9-11, a tragedy in American history. But at the same time, as you mentioned, that hundreds of thousands of people were killed all over the world because of this 9-11. Those people will never be remembered. We Mm -hmm. We would never know their names. There' be no memorial service, there' be no you know, uh, monument. There' be nothing on their name ever. But if we look at them, if you see them as human being, we will feel an arch in our heart that we need to do something moving forward so that it doesn't happen again. It doesn't happen anymore. They were just not numbers. They were not just Iraqis, Afghanis or Syrians, whatever. They are human beings like us, like even me. If we could see them as human beings, we'll find ways not to repeat the history again. But unfortunately, it's a sad thing that we human beings, we do not learn from our past mistakes. And that's why there is So much war, so much hate and violence in this war. And my effort to save the life of my attacker was to to begin a new narrative that we don't have to go in the path of hitting, hurting each other back and forth, continue the cycle. Let's pause at some point, take responsibility, find ways to, to say enough is enough. We need to move forward by forgiving each other, by treating each other as humans first. This put a pause on the cycle of hate and violence.
1: Yeah, the best thing that ever happened to me, and thankfully, whether my parents intended to or not, you know, I I was born in upstate New York, grew up in Guatemala, though, and then I started traveling the world as a kid. I've spent time in 30-ish countries, and I I love leaving the U.S. to go visit somewhere new or even somewhere I've been before. Like, I live... For being in new places. The best thing that ever happened to me was as a teenager when I'm when I started traveling a lot on my own. I stopped, I started actively thinking of myself as a citizen of the world.
0: Very true.
1: I don't, I don't care what's on my passport. My passport gets me on a plane so I can go somewhere else. There's no, I've got no particular pride that mine says United States of America. it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where I'm from. Right. What matters is that when I'm thinking about these you know, Iraqi, Afghani, Syrian children, women, you know, men that died innocently or were part of the armed forces and they died because they were fighting. It doesn't matter. Strip all that away. You know, I I live in New York. And so we, we, I was down on September 11. I went down, I have very mixed feelings about uh, uh, September 11 because, you know, we could talk for another three hours about how, uh, I I don't know if I, it sounds almost crass to say it this way, but we asked for it, right? Like this wasn't out of the blue. That attack wasn't, uh, it, was, it, it was very par for the course. The, the, the things we were doing to, to people overseas in the Middle East, the, the, the drone strikes and the, the, all the things that we were doing to them, well, it was inevitable, it's not like the, it's not like we didn't deserve it as a country. Those 3000 people didn't deserve it, but this country asked for it. So I have a very mixed, you know, of yeah, I have mixed feelings about 9/11, but I was down there and I was thinking about that cuz I was I was thinking about the number of people that like you said, they'll never have a memorial, no tomb, no gravestone, like nothing. And I'm seeing all these 3 2977 names, right? And obviously like that's totally great that we can see those names and read them Absolutely. and touch them and remember them. That's, that's what should happen. But then, yeah, again, what about the 900,000 that we'll never know, we'll never know them. They're just, they're, they're a blip on the radar and then they're gone when their life is snuffed out. And like you said, we've got to, I, I, I love this idea that you've brought up several times because that's kind of how I see my work, which is like, I want to spend my life, you know, maybe in more provocative ways than most people would choose, but I want to spend my life breaking cycles. Somebody's got to stand in on that train track and say nope you're not going around the train track again we're not doing absolutely this again. we're not we're not going to continue to subject people to horrible health care we're not going to continue to kill people on death row we're not going to continue to live in this you know income inequality ridden country where you know somebody's got to stand in that gap and say no more right right and and for a lot of these issues it's so big and there's a lot of people have to stand in the gap but it starts with it starts with you know race bouillon saying yeah, according to how the world has typically functioned, yes, Mark deserves to die. I don't want that, and I'm going to stand up. And it got to the point where some of his last words to you were,
0: correct me if I'm wrong, I love you, brother. That is absolutely right. That was one of his, that was uh, his last words. He called me a love you, bro. I mean, he's, he's going to track back for... Um, Before he was executed, this is what he he told me that I love you, bro. And every time I talk about that, it it rings into my ear, his voice, that 10 years ago, he told me before pulling the trigger, what are you from? And before he was executed, it's the same voice telling me I love you, bro. Mm. I hear both you know, uh, both the sounds that, where are you from in a lively world, 10 years apart. And, uh, but I asked what made him change? When he was ignorant, when he was a victim of Islamophobia, he saw me as a lesser person, a terrorist, a threat to society, but when he learned more about me and my faith, then he was able to see me as a human being. And he called me brother and he said he loved me because his heart was filled with love, kindness, empathy. So if, if we give chance to people to grow and learn, you know, sky's the limit. And there is a uh, when people get sick with disease, we do not kill people because they got sick. We treat we treat people without eliminating them. Same thing: the people who are hateful today, like my my attacker, and in this world, in our country, there are a lot of hate going on. A lot of people are angry. A lot of people are you know uh, intolerant. Uh, pretty much hateful to many things, to many people. It's a disease. Instead of looking down on people, if we could help each other to be cured without eliminating. Ten years ago, my attacker was full of hate, intolerance, angry. But before he was executed, he was in pure peace. He renewed his faith in Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. And he renewed his faith in humanity, and he told me, very clearly, please continue your human rights war. This world needs you. And 10 years ago, he thought this world would be a better place if I did not exist.
1: That's incredible. Um, that you attacker would end his life not only expressing his love for you but also encouraging you to keep doing this work. That speaks so much to me because there are so many people out there if I'm being honest whether it's people that are you know uh, screaming misinformation or disinformation about vaccines and this pandemic or whether it's you know about stolen elections or about white supremacy or about, you know, any number of things. There are so many people that I don't hate them, not even close, but does that urge rise up? Like, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want what you're offering anywhere near me or my kids or my community, like be gone is how I feel. And what this story is showing is that sure, it's really hard work, really hard fucking work to face hatred. And in this case, hatred and white supremacy and Islamophobia and all sorts of things, stare at it in the face over the course of several years and see this work, see this transforming work happen. Like that gives me hope that I can go out and do that more with people that I simply today before this conversation be so easy to just write off and be like, nope, I'm going to hang out with people that agree more or less with what I'm about. And we can like move forward on these issues. And your story is one that it's like, yes, that sure, for sure. Partner with like-minded people, you know, for this campaign, you obviously partner with people that were against the death penalty, you know, but also, there's hard work to be done in spending time with these people that believe, uh, these, these lies and these distortions of the truth. And, and that are, you know, you used the word victim to a few minutes ago to, to, to about regarding Mark, how many things happen, how many people failed Mark in his life? How many systems failed Mark in his life? It doesn't, it doesn't He's not exonerated from the, the crimes he committed. Absolutely not. Yes. But there are there are there, there are there are parents and uncles and aunts and neighbors and school teachers in a country that failed Mark. I mean that resulted in him trying to kill people and
0: killing people. I mean, you know, that is um is the entire he, he's a victim of our system as well. Um, yes. If... before 9 11 mark was supposed to be behind bars because of his crime in july 2001 for you know for the position he was arrested for the position of firearms as a felon as his second offense and he was released and bond next day but he was never supervised or monitored by this you know by the people in the system so he was not only hunting people after 9-11, when he was apprehended, his car and his house were full of arsenal. So he was not only violating his parole, but he was also buying firearms for which he was arrested a few days before. So he, he was not only a victim of Islamophobia, but also a victim of our you know, system Yes, that never yes, gave yes. him a chance to repair, rehabilitate. He was going through in and out of prison like a revolving door since he was twelve. So you know, and Mark is not the only story. There are many more marks in our society. They were, there is still, and how can we we stop many more people becoming like Mark? is by fixing the system. The good thing is that we have a system. It's not perfect, the way you and I are not perfect. We have a system, but we need to find ways to improve that system. And uh, I would love to give you one more example that when I said there are more people like Mark, more recently, I was invited to meet with the founder of an armed anti-Islamic hate group for a one hour conversation. Wow. That lasted over five because we both were willing to engage in, con- in, in courageous conversation, dismantling uh, the seemingly endless lies and misnomers about Islam and Muslims that I worked to respectfully correct while leading by example. And uh, the meeting concluded uh, with heartfelt embrace and interest to continue the dialogue. And for example, uh, prior to our conversation, this founder believed that Muslims settle in communities and after two years begin to convert and, or kill in order for them to receive their ticket to Haven. What? This He believed this. This was his, his belief that Muslims settle in communities. And after two years, they begin to convert and or kill in order for them to receive their ticket to heaven. And here I'm sitting in front of him as a Muslim, listening to him, this kind of, you know, lies. I said, where did you find this? Who told you that? He said, are you not paying attention? Is everywhere in the news media. You go to online, you hear everywhere, this, this is what they talk about. You listen to news media. He told me I was not paying attention. So I gave my example that, okay, me being as a Muslim, if you are true, I lived in Dallas for 20 years. So then at least I have killed at least 10 people or converted at least 10 people, but in reality, it's zero. I have family in Dallas, all the Muslims in the US, then they, they've they been doing what you just said, right? So what our law enforcement, the FBI, they've been doing. Right. So you can imagine that this kind of you know, misinformation lies have fed so much to, you know, to people through media you know, by our public officials, selected, you know, leaders, that, you know, they produced people like Mark Stroman, and Mark Stroman, after he was arrested, this is what he said very clearly, that what I did, most Americans wanted to do. They just didn't have the guts. He was a true American, he was a patriot, and he blamed me and my kind for 9-11, and he said, America was no place for Muslims. Mm. But at the end, he told me, please continue your, your work because we need more people like you to help us to get beyond the bitter experience, the anger, the intolerance. And he said explicitly after his arrest that watching the same footage of the Twin Tower getting hit by planes, listening to our public officials, news media, and, the, you know, and our leaders, again and again and again, blaming the Muslims. I snapped, I took up arms, I killed people. I was not a serial killer. I had my own problems, but listening to our leaders, public officials, and paying attention to the media day and night, fixated to the news, I thought it's my duty as a patriot to take some lives, to kill some people from Middle East, And that would be a justifiable action to what happened in New York City. And now I am paying the big price while those who inspired me are enjoying their freedom and luxury by selling lies, fear, and intolerance. And this is exactly what is happening today. That when the COVID started, Asian people, they had nothing to do with COVID. Yep. Right? So this hate continues. The the trend continues. Yes. Before 9-11, Islam, before 9-11, I was pretty unknown to my attacker. But immediately after this attack, I was labeled as a threat, as a lesser person, as a terrorist to him. Similarly, Muslim and Islam in the U.S. was fairly unknown to most Americans. But immediately after the attacks, the religion and its followers were labeled as a violent, extremist, and a threat to society. And that trend continues today. And I'm very hopeful that since you and I are talking today, we wanted to give a damn to our country that, you know what, enough is enough. You and I, we are not enemy of each other. We are brothers. The people hate me. The people hate me. I'm not their enemy. You know, if you come to know me, you'll find me as someone like you who is afraid of something, who loves something, who lost something, who is a human being, as like as you. So come to know me and allow me to get to know you as well. The animosity presence in our society is artificial, It's manufactured. So, that the more we hate each other, it helps someone else to, to advance in their career, to fulfill yeah. their agenda, and it, it helps to achieve their goals. The more we stay divided, it helps somebody else.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, division, this country being divided the way that it is, and all the injustices that are in play, very profitable business. Right, absent, and the longer the longer that we engage in it, there are people that don't give a shit about us, that are benefiting from this. They're benefiting from the hatred and the division and all the stuff that's hap- that comes along with. It. They're benefiting uh, physically and financially and all the other lees. Like they, this is a it's a it's a it's a business that so many people in places and things, it it, 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 it uh, benefits them to keep this going. And we've got to stand in the gap and say no more, right? And we need a million people like us.
0: Before we say no more, we have to understand it first. Because unless yes. we know what are we standing for and why, the big question is why, then what we are fighting for, what we're standing against. Like for example, uh, during the Nuremberg trial, uh, one of the top Nazis, Hendrik Himmler, said in, this, in, the, in the open court that the, the best political weapon is the weapon of terror. Men may hate us, but we do not ask for their love. We had to terrorize our own people so that no one would say anything when the Jews are arrested, captured, and snatched from the street. Wow. And I visited the Nuremberg Court when I visited Germany a few years back and standing inside that courtroom, this was, this was echoing in my head that this is exactly what is happening in our country, in our world right now, yeah. that our, yeah. some of our politicians are using that terror, to terrorizing their own people so that they will stay divided. And the more they stay divided, it helps them. And this was done to the Jews 100 years ago, and now, 100 years later, you know, uh, in Germany, 100 years ago, the Kippah, the Jewish faith was the most hated, was the other. 100 years later in the U.S., the hijab is the sign of oppression. The hijab is the sign, is the most hated symbol in America, in the world right now. And these Muslims have been living in the U.S. For decades, for centuries, 10 to 30% of the people who were brought in this country against their will in chain were Muslims. So, if Islam and Muslims were violent, extremists, a threat to our society, what were there for the last centuries, for many decades? Why only after 9 11 we are hearing all this against Islam and Muslims, right? So, it is manufactured, it has been, you know, Purposefully injected into our society. And once we allow hate against any groups, any group, actually, we are allowing ourselves to feed into that kind of fear against other groups as well. And as a result, we're seeing the Asian community came under tremendous threat and violence because of the COVID, because we allowed ourselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah, again, all this can be summed up as we don't learn from history and we keep repeating it over and over and over again. Absolutely. Um, and there's a lot of factors there, that w- a couple of which we've touched on. I, you've been so generous with your time. So let me sp- let's me let spend a couple minutes here as we wrap up talking about World Without Hate, this movement and organization that you have started. Let me quickly read the mission and vision And then I want to turn it over to you just to talk about who you are, what you're doing and what you're hoping to accomplish the mission of world without hate, preventing and disrupting hate and violence through empathy and storytelling in the vision, which is just incredible. It's so simple, but it spans all of life. If you can get these three things, right, creating a world without violence, a world without victims and a world without hate. World Without Hate, tell us about it.
0: Well, during our global campaign to try and save the life of my attacker in Texas' death row, I received tremendous amount of support and positive energy from people all over the world. And it encouraged me to establish the nonprofit World Without Hate, to continue my work, to keep my dead promise that I would dedicate my life to others. And uh, I wanted to continue this this work and leave it there even once I'm gone. This movement to help people to be more compassionate, more empathetic, understanding, accepting, and forgiving. The mission of this nonprofit is to prevent, as you mentioned, prevent and disrupt hate and violence through storytelling and empathy. Story helps humanize people. Yep. Once you you hear my story and I hear yours, it helps us to see each other as humans. It helps us to bond in a human capacity. And that's what we, we have been doing through World Without Hate share more human story, and we are asking everyone to be more empathetic, to treat each other as humans first, regardless of who they are, where they came from, who they love, who they worship, and that will help to disrupt divisiveness, intolerance, hate, and violence. I stepped away from my IT career a couple of years ago to spend all my time behind this nonprofit so that we can be more impactful, more effective, more productive, touching more human lives locally, nationally, and all over the world, and encouraging people to fight for a world that we all deserve, a world without violence, a world without fear, a world without victims, and a world without hate.
1: I love it. You know, it would take me, as I was putting together a few notes for this conversation, <laughs> it, I, I could spend the next five, seven minutes talking about all of the, the places you've spoken at, the publications that have you know featured your story, the awards and recognitions you have received over the past few years. I won't do all that. I'll share that in the show notes. But I really want to encourage everyone listening to check out worldwithouthate.org. Check out uh, Race, uh, bouillon's website. I'll share all of that in the show notes. I, I always, every one of my guests, if they have an organization or not, whatever, I'm always sharing that and saying, go, go pay attention to this, go follow it. I'm, I'm giving an extra, an extra push to that during this conversation because I feature so many different kinds of people doing so many different kinds of things and I'm gonna continue doing that. But the kinds of ideas that you're spreading and sharing, this idea of a world without violence, fear, victims, hate, that is, no matter what people are going after, whether it's income inequality or the criminal legal system or whatever it is, even wanting to raise the minimum wage, that fits here, right? Like all, everything fits under these, you know, this vision of a world without these things. And so I'm, I'm so... Glad. First of all, I'm so glad we got to talk. Your story is incredible.
0: Well, I'm truly happy that you and I are talking today, and through our conversation, many many people will challenge themselves to be a better human being. They will challenge themselves to go the extra mile to make a bigger impact in this world, pledging proactively you know, denouncing ignorance, intolerance, and hate. And, um, you know, world without hate starts within each of us. The peace work starts within each of us. And uh, I'm so grateful to you that, you know, uh, they invited me to your show and uh, sharing my story. And um, I hope that, you know, uh, people will challenge themselves to make this world a better place
1: i love it well i hope we get to to, uh speak again off camera and you know we'll do another podcast at some point i I would there's there's so much more that i had to pull back from talking about just for for the sake of time today but i hope we can do it again uh you're a rock star uh a true hero to to me and so many and um i'm grateful for you so thanks for joining us today thank
0: Thank you so much
1: That's it for today, my friends. Thank you so much for spending some time with race and me today. To learn more about what race and World Without Hate are doing and for ways to get involved, go to worldwithouthate.org and visit racebuyan.com. That's R-A-I-S-B-H-U-I-Y-A-N.com. And of course, to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, let's give a damn.com. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. I'm grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at let's I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.